Hello and welcome in once again to the QB11 show. I am Doug Scott, your host, joined as always by QB11. Andrew, good evening. Good evening, Doug. How are you doing today? I am great. And of course, we are joined once again by our old friend or young friend, Hith Liday from Addicted to Quack, managing editor over there and um, game grader and film expert extraordinaire. Hith Liday, welcome in. Uh, thanks. It was a hell of an intro. That is. I never got an intro like that before. Yeah, you're, you're on the show. Yeah. That's what happens <laughs> when you give up your first name. Yeah, that's true. It is. Give up the government name. Um, but your name isn't Hithliday, right? That would be a, a remarkable gift uh, for my parents. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so well, we're, we're glad to have you back again. Uh, we've done this now. I think this will be our fourth time. We had you in after the third game, sixth game, ninth game, and now after the 12th game. So I think we're going to have a good time talking for a long time about this Oregon season and, and the different units and, and how the, the team performed on the field throughout the course of the season. So where do you guys want to start? Um, well, let's, I guess with a little short overview. So this is uh, the quadrant of a schedule where Oregon actually had a losing record. The only quadrant of the schedule where that was the case. Um, so the games that we're going to be focused on here are, or, are the Washington, uh, Utah and Oregon State games. Um, I guess you want to start with broad general thoughts or yeah, let's, let's just do that. Hith, what, what are your thoughts on this kind of final third of the schedule? Uh, well, I thought it was characterized by, uh, some substantial defensive breakdowns. Um, and, uh, I think admirable offensive performances, you know, they were dealing with Nix's injury and I think fairly well. Um, the offense, you know, winds up grading out pretty much, you know, as, you know, efficient as, uh, you know, it, it, as the rest of the season, um, you know, despite having to deal with, you know, first of all, the way that the run game is affected by Nick's not being able to carry the ball and defenses knowing it, um, the, uh, and then also he, he developed some accuracy issues. I, I'm not. You know, I'm not really sure biomechanically why, but, you know, something about the way that he has to like load up, you know, power onto his injured ankle, I think, um, you know, and, and that was like, you know, that was the thing about Bo Nix, you know, during this entire season and, and what a um, contrast it was to 2021 is that he's just a very accurate quarterback. You know, he put the ball where it needed to be, you know, virtually every throw. Um, and, and it wasn't until the very end of the season that we started seeing balls, you know, getting put in the dirt and it was like, Oh, this again. Um, and, uh, you know, but despite all of that, they, they still wound up, you know, grading out very well, you know, on offense, uh, you know, they certainly didn't lose the Washington game because they didn't score enough points. Um, although I do think that they, they probably made a strategic error kicking the field goal there at the very end. Um, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, they, they had to come up with sort of a different game plan to go up against Utah. It wound up being successful. Um, that game was interesting because they sort of identified the, the limited ways that Utah's offense works. And, um, and to be perfectly honest, I'm sort of surprised that other teams didn't shut them down as effectively as Oregon did. It sort of feels like that there was a failure of, of film study for a lot of Pac-12 teams. Um, although it doesn't really surprise me that I'm, uh, you know, better at identifying these things than Alex Grinch's. Um, 
and then the Oregon State game is just baffling, just an absolutely baffling game in which for the first like 40 minutes or so, you know, the, the first like the first half and then the first part of the third quarter, uh, everything's going exactly according to plan. All the grades are, are coming out exactly as, you know, as expected. And then the team just like, I don't know, starts committing, you know, four consecutive special teams disasters and then they can't stop the run at all. Um and, and it was absolutely bizarre, you know, like that game, that game should have been something like a 28 point win. Um, and then it wasn't, and it was, you know, it was crazy. And like e- each of those three games are, are extremely different. Like there's no real through line through any of them. Um, they're just like weird stuff happened in a lot of different games and not to say that they should be written off or not, you know, analyzed or anything. It's just like, if you're looking for a narrative, you know, for them, I, I think that's what you're asking me for. Like, I don't have a narrative for them. Like they, they're each sort of their own thing. They each, you know, had, you know, good stuff and bad stuff that were completely different from one another. And it was just a, you know, pretty funky end of the season. Yeah, I agree. I think that each game kind of fell on different trend lines. I mean, you say the Washington game where up until the Knicks injury, the offense is moving completely unabated, just up and down the field. Um, but the defense is also completely lacking the ability to make it a stop um, against the Washington pass game. Uh, and then I think it's important to mention at the end of that game, right? Like the Knicks injury happens. I, I agree with you. Maybe they should have gone for it on that fourth down, given where they were on the field. Um but when your starting quarterback gets hurt the play prior, it makes it a little bit more difficult, I think, to make that call. Uh, and then, obviously, the kind of like the unsureness, if he if he can come back into the game on the fourth down with Thompson, uh, and then we, we finally do get him back into the game. And I think there was a key drop on that last drive that would have put us in field goal range to tie and send it to overtime. Uh, that kind of, I think, kind of puts that game on ice almost and, and ends it for us. I think there was a lot of tough circumstances in that game. I think we obviously need to spend some time talking about the pass defense tonight. Uh, and then you go to the Utah game, right? And you have this quarterback who's very clearly on one leg, um, completely immobile, not a threat to run the ball. And it, it not very much so affected um, the way that Oregon was able to run the ball in terms of an efficiency standpoint. I think that I don't know what your charting came out on that game, but I know watching the film was – very, very often it was the unblocked edge or backside defender who was just completely scraping and running and running the uh, running the ankles of the heels of the offensive line that was making the tackle um, on most runs in the second half of that game. But like I would I would probably say that was one of the more gutsy performances by this Oregon team all year. And then to follow that up with what looked like a really strong performance with Knicks maybe moving around a little bit better all the way up until in the fourth quarter or about three minutes ago in the third quarter, inexplicably like the effort on defense, in my opinion, just kind of fell through the floor and all of a sudden we're dropping, we're, we're dropping punts. Uh, we're not fielding kicks inside kickoffs inside the one yard line. Uh, we're just doing a bunch of really unforced errors and finding unique ways to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, but I think we should start with that Washington game. I'm really curious to see what, what your opinion is on, on that past defense and um, anecdotally kind of what you think the problem was in that game. Well, I mean, it comes down, it, it comes down to the past events, you know, obviously, you know, that they, they Oregon outplayed Washington, the other three quarters of football. That's, 
it's not totally to uh, surprising, you know, like that's what their stats going into that game indicated, you know, was going to go down. I thought that there were, you know, this is going to be me second guessing uh, the, the, the defensive game plan uh, for that game. Um, I thought the Washington's film indicated that um, there were ways to get, Penix to make mistakes or to be impatient and to have low productivity throws. And I wasn't seeing Oregon do those things. Um, I, it really looked to me like they were just, I, I like, for example, you know, you didn't see what they were doing against Arizona, you know, where they were putting, you know, multiple cornerbacks on the field and playing, you know, 33 stack defense or anything, you know, like it was, you know, sort of their basic defense, which like we sort of knew was going to get shredded by Washington's passing attack. And, you know, and, and they sort of like, so then they back down to the, the red zone where, you know, that's the thing, you know, I, I published my article, um, this morning, uh, you know, with the, the full statistical review and one of the heartening things about the defense, um, in, uh, 2022 is that their red zone defense is, is, is better than their defense between the twenties. Um, it is better than it was in 2021 or in 2019, you know, the red zone defense this year was actually pretty good. Um, and it seemed like that was their strategy, uh, was to, you know, back down to the red zone and then force them to kick field goals, um, sort of like the UCLA strategy. Um, and you know, it worked, they were in position, uh, you know, where they possessed the ball on the goal line, you know, up by four, uh, if they, or not the goal line, but, you know, right in the low red zone, uh, you know, where if they punch in a touchdown, they go up by 11, you know, points with four minutes left on the clock, which would mean the game is over. Even if Washington scores again, or it can just run off clock again, because, you know, they just did an eight minute drive or whatever crazy, you know, duration that was, uh, you know, Washington certainly wasn't stopping the run game. And then, you know, uh, it's a bad snap on second and five Knicks gets hurt on third and five. I didn't really love that play call. I think that, that, you know, they scored a touchdown on it earlier, but like, you got to know that Washington's going to be ready for it. It wasn't, you know, real wild about, you know, that decision. I think they should have, I, I didn't really understand, you know, why after years worth of, you know, interesting, you know, run game stuff, like, you know, an I formation with a bunch of, you know, tight ends instead of like backup offensive linemen or, you know, the Sewell fullback dive, you know, stuff that they put in for Colorado or the pistol formation stuff that they were doing against BYU. Like, I don't understand why they had all that stuff, you know, ready to go. And then like, and then didn't want to do it, you know, so that was sort of crazy making me. And, and then on fourth down, I, you know, I really do feel like that was the strategic error of the game was kicking a field goal there. The field goal does you absolutely no good. You have to get uh, a touchdown, the situation and the game. I, I really felt like that was, you know, my overall criticism of the coaching staff is I think it's clever, but not wise. And that's, you know, something that you're going to get when you have a very young coaching staff. Um, and, you know, it sort of came down to that. Like I, I, I didn't, I didn't love the game plan. I would have liked to actually defend the pass uh, instead of conceding the middle of the field. But if you were going to do that, then, you know, even if the quarterback is injured, you need to have the the cojones to to realize on, you know, in that fourth down situation that you need to punch it in and that you have a bunch of run stuff ready to go. Um, you know, that you've been putting on that you've been practicing all year 
you know, to, to punch it in. That that was my, and then the way the rest of the game goes, it's sort of like, you know, oh, the running back slips and oh, does Bo Nix come back in? I don't know. After the, after the point where they fail to kick the field goal, I sort of don't care. Like the, the sort of the, you know, the football gods are mad at you. The, 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 you know, of course that stuff happened. Um, But, but, but yeah, you know, those two things, like I really didn't understand the past defense uh, uh, game plan. I really didn't understand why they didn't, you know, understand in that situation they needed a touchdown. It, it, I, I agree in a lot of senses. I think that th- that drive, um, the 21 play drive down into the red zone, and then uh, clearly guys are tired at that point. And then we have the the bad snap, which puts us after a five yard run on first down, puts us in third and five. Um, I agree. I thought that this was probably my biggest takeaway offensively. Um, Cause I think offensively we were very good in this kind of fourth quarter of the season here. Uh, was that I felt that we got very cute in the red zone at times and got away from the plays that got us into the red zone, which I really didn't like. I didn't like getting away from the personnel groupings, um, like playing just normal 11 and 12 personnel, running our base concepts. I felt like we always felt this need to get tricky and outsmart ourselves. Uh, and, I, and I think that going empty and trying to do that quarterback draw again after the novelty has worn off, and I'm sure they had made adjustments to it, um, in the locker room at halftime was a miscalculation. Uh, and ultimately it ended up costing, I think two games this season when you consider the injury that, that occurred on that play. And obviously you, there's no way to account for that or to predict that that's going to happen. It, uh, it is crazy that he got hurt on that play. I'm not saying that Kenny Dillingham got Bo Nix hurt or that Alex Cook, the the Washington safety, you know, had a dirty, you know, that wasn't a dirty. In fact, like Bo Nix was asked that question and he was like, no, it wasn't, you know, he he did his job. But I am saying that, like, that play was not going to succeed. Like, you know, you already shot your wad on that one. Like, what are you doing calling that again? And what are you doing when you have this entire playbook full of I formation runs and pistol runs and just a base offense like, you know, you know pick up five yards you know you'd spent you'd spent 20 plays picking up five yards you know like i i don't understand why you need to do the quarterback draw again yeah that's a i the why like why did we just abandon the offense that we just used to methodically drive the field in 21 plays and like almost 10 minutes of, of game time and then just say oh okay well now we're in the red zone so we're gonna we're gonna do something completely and entirely different just to say that we did uh, and I felt that there was several times this year, uh, including the Oregon State game, where we did that. Like the last drive of the Oregon State game, um, where we just tried to line up and heavy personnel and smash it down their throats over and over again down down in the goal line. It's like, what? Why are we taking our best skill players out of the game to insert backup offensive linemen who haven't proven to be if, like really dominant or effective players? Yeah, that's uh, really even go back to the even go back to the drive before that where we, we had first and goal at the ten, threw a threw a pass to the Franklin in the end zone. Okay, good good shot play didn't work, and then on the second and ten we bring out the jumbo fourteen package and and try to run a short yardage play from from the ten yard line. It was well, it was a utterly wasted down. We I've saw multiple teams do this this year, and like I think T, TCU did it against Kansas State in overtime as well. You are a very effective team running the ball out of your base per personnel packages, but when you have an advantage, like like when you're either if you're playing even numbers or if your quarterback can run the ball, you can gain a number in the box running out of your eleven or twelve personnel 
pass-based packages. Why, why would you remove the threat of pass and go down to your heavy like 23 style personnel groupings where they're going to personnel match you. You're taking skill players out of the game in favor of offensive linemen and you're condensing, you're condensing the game down to this giant cluster of bodies in, in these very narrow gaps because of the splits that are being taken. I, I don't understand that strategy when you're the more talented team, like keep your plate, keep your athletes on the field, keep the field spread and make them cover the field, like create, create opportunities for your, your, your talent advantage to express itself in space. Um, when you condense the field, you condense the formations down to this, this 22 man pileup in this 10 yard, like wide area. I think that you are, you're undermining your own interests in this, just to say that you're the more physical football team. Man, the, to me, I'm not sure if that's the explanation, though, like or that's what was going through his head. I think what was going through his head was like, well, every game I've introduced a new thing, so I'm just going to keep doing that. And I think probably like game nine, you know, was the time to stop doing that and just, you know, like, to you know, quit install, you know, like this was the game they had that Emery and Henry you know, look where they had to wave it back in at the last second and it wound up, you know, yeah. resulting in a fumble, you know, like they hadn't done that before, you know, um, you know, or, and similarly, they had not done the, like, you know, put in, uh, you know, who was it? It was, it was open Walden. I think, you know, was that, you know, like, and to your point, you know, like, Hey, they thrown a pass, a touchdown pass to Josh Connerly before, you know, like they, they had out of that eye formation, you know, split out Patrick Herbert, you know, out, you know, on the sideline, throw him, uh, threw him a pass against UCLA. Like you have options out of the I formation to throw the ball that you put on film that you've, you know, must've spent time practicing like, but instead they're installing new stuff, you know, you know, at the stretch, instead of honing the stuff that you've, you know, figured out how to do, you know, in the red zone to sort of gain, you know, advantages. Uh, I, you know, this is hindsight, you know, we are second guessing, um, but like, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure if like too cute is exactly the term that I would use, but like there's, you know, is it, it was fairly clear to me that he wanted to install a new, you know, piece of eye candy every game. And I, I thought that that got excessive. Um, I, I thought, you know, probably wouldn't better just to, you know, practice the base stuff and, and, or, you know, if you have a range of gadgets that nine games worth of new gadgets is enough, you don't need 12, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, I will say, and this is something that, that has to be mentioned. Like when you're dealing with a quarterback, that's hurt. Like part of what made Oregon's red zone offense successful through the first three quarters of the season was the fact that the quarterback run was on the table and it allowed us to, to kind of regain some of the advantage that's lost as the field condenses, right? Because as the field condenses, the safeties organically have to play closer to the line of scrimmage and you end up getting like the run fits end up happening a lot faster than they do between the twenties. Um, and when you lose that, when you have to take that quarterback run element away, I think that it made us play a little tight in the red zone because we were, we, we, were, we were afraid, we were trying to protect Knicks from himself, try to keep him out of situations where he's in a, in a position where he's going to have to run, where he's going to have to operate in confined space and put that ankle at further risk. 
And I do think that that played an effect on maybe the decisions that were made from a play calling standpoint uh, in, the, in those final three games, especially in the Utah game. Um, the Utah game, it was like we, we didn't even go under center. We wanted to keep him away from even the possibility or risk that maybe an offensive lineman steps on his foot with a false step. or uh, and, and I do think that that negatively impacted us offensively in the way that we were able to operate in those tight red zone areas. That's definitely true. And you were right earlier when you were talking about, um, you know, Utah, Utah, you know, play seven guys. You you put 11 personnel on the field. They're going to put seven guys in the box. You can't block seven with six uh, unless you have, you know, the threat of the quarterback run. Utah wasn't honoring the quarterback run. You know, of course they weren't. Uh, And, you know, hey, presto, there you go. Now, Oregon was able to get. Uh, some running going, you know, in that game, you know, a couple of times uh, uh, Bucky just, you know, made the dude miss um, a couple of times. They did a couple of, you know, some interesting stuff where they'd use a wide receiver to wash a dude down. I really feel like Joe Moorhead would have been proud of a couple of the play designs that they used, you know, against Utah, um, you know, <laughs> sort of like felt like I was watching, you know, the, 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 you know, some power sucker stuff, you know, I was like, Hey, I remember this. Um, but for the most part, yeah, they, they really had, a, you know, and, and the other thing is that, you know, it, it's good enough blocking. It's good enough running back that even when the running back is getting tackled by a dude coming looping around from the other side, you know, the box safety or somebody who's supposed to be honoring the, the quarterback run, but isn't like, he's still getting like four yards. Um, which, you know, is enough to sort of like inch the chains along, pick up third downs, you know, that sort of thing. You're just not breaking off chunk yardage. Um, and so, you know, all things considered, you know, it was a game that Knicks had to win, you know, throwing the ball. And he did, you know, that was actually, you know, a pretty inspired passing performance. Um, it's, it, you know, the, it wasn't as high scoring um, as we were accustomed to, you know, because because of those limitations you know on the run game and also because they had that you know really dumb turnover um but like you know they were effectively moving the ball um and and then that game you know really so and then on top of that you know it was pretty clearly a game plan that was designed for running quarterback that then they found out at the last minute wasn't going to be it was going to be bo nix um and so they're, you know, they, 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 they stuck with sort of the same game plan. Like the game plan totally makes sense for Ty Thompson, like, or, or the good version of Ty Thompson anyway, I guess you have to bet on that. Um, and, and so like, it sort of didn't make sense for Nick's, but Nick's made it work, you know, good for him. Um, you didn't really see any accuracy problems, you know, from him in that game, uh, which is remarkable. Um, they, what you, the biggest problem that they had that was sort of, um, an unforeseen problem, like the run game problems were were foreseen problem. Um, uh, uh, and being able to like, and not being able to throw very effectively against Clark Phillips, that was a foreseen problem. I'm not sure why they tried that at all. Um, but you couldn't throw against anybody else on Utah's secondary. Like it's really not very good secondary outside of Clark Phillips. Um, and uh, uh, and the linebackers can't cover. You can throw it across the middle. Um, Utah's really unsatisfied with their linebackers this year. Um, just won the Pac-12 championship. I'm not sure how other teams didn't take them down. But anyway, uh, the the uh, the the thing that was remarkable when we talked about it, you know, um, or, or, or you know, on a previous podcast that I was on, was that like they wanted to throw a lot of screen passes um, to the outside, and they were just not very good at it because the perimeter blocking was you know stunk and i mean it really stunk these last three games like it was shaky all year long but like oh my god the perimeter blocking was bad uh 
these last i sort of think like that's this you know great un you know unnoticed or you know the the sort of like sidelight you know thing uh, about the last three games was like they needed to be able to throw screen passes and they were not very successful at them because the perimeter blocking was just atrocious and like it doesn't make sense you know these are big physical guys you know the tight ends and the wide receivers i don't uh, you know, that's one that I just don't get. Like, it was bizarre watching, you know, Ferguson, you know, of all people, you know, sort of getting thrown down by by undersized members of Utah secondary. You know what I mean? No, I agree. And I think that's something that when they do their self-scout this offseason, it has to be a point of emphasis because there's no excuse. Like, we had guys, I mean, go. let's just go back a year. Jalen Red was 165 pounds soaking wet and was a better blocker than any of these guys on the edge. And to me, like, there's – I don't know. I've always felt that perimeter blocking from receivers and tight ends is an is a is a largely an effort game because um, we've had a lot of really small guys. Whether it was Charles Nelson, whether it was Jalen Red, uh, whether I mean they were all really really tenacious and effective blockers on the outside, and so um, they, that's something that they need to get fixed because it, it it's also hurting the run game. It's not just hurting the screen game because the difference between a ten yard chunk run and a 50 yard explosive run that that turns into a touchdown play is maybe that last extra second of perimeter blocking that keeps the corner out of pursuit um and so yeah i 100 agree that's something that has to be addressed one thing that kind of surprised me with nix's injury is like there is other ways to reclaim a body in the box count and i i assumed that they would start attacking with more vertical rpos even if it's just like slants, um, maybe I maybe, was surprised by that. Yeah, maybe like a bang eight, just something something quick that you could either take a safety or um, a second level defender out of out of the run fit for even if it's holding them for just a second, second and a half. That could be enough to give your running back a good angle. Um, and I, I don't know. Or the hell, Utah you could game, just throw the RPO. Utah's uh, linebackers are super aggressive. You'd you'd have that throw open all day long. And you know, what's bizarre is that that's all over uh, Dillingham's film at Florida state is yeah. exactly those, you know, that, those, that type of RPO that you're discussing. And in fact, some of that stuff and inside screens and, and, and like Texas routes, that sort of stuff, like they were effective at that in the Utah game as well. I put some clips of it in my article for the, the that Utah film review, uh, where it's like, look, you can't hit outside screens, but you can hit this zone in the middle of the field. You can hit running backs. You can hit tight ends. You can, you know, exploit the the aggression of the inside linebackers who will come up immediately on the run threat. Like those are there and and they had several of them. And we also know that they know how to design short passes that can go big because that's how they had to beat Cal. Remember, you know, the way that Cal's strategy, you know, their defensive strategy to sort of take the deep ball away, uh, you know, worked is like, you know, all of that sort of stuff. It, it's part of Kenny Dillingham's experience, both at Oregon and at Florida state. And yet, and yet he kept pushing the outside screens that just obviously weren't working because the perimeter blocking wasn't there. You know, it, it is. And both of those things are problem. It's a problem that the perimeter blocking is not there because you'd never want to, you know, just concede, you know, some aspect of your offense isn't working. Um, like, you know, teams that win national championships do not concede aspects of their offense don't work. Um, but second of all, okay, 
make the assessment, Kenny, you know, like, you know, that there was a, there was a very obvious disparity and it was clear by this, by halftime between inside and outside screens and, you know, RPOs versus, you know, out, outside throws. And like, it didn't, you know, that, that adjustment didn't really get made until the very end of the game is you know, about five minutes left in the fourth quarter. Yeah. And I, I will say that like the strategy makes some sense. Like even if you're not great at those horizontal screens, if you inundate their defense with enough of those looks, they're going to start creeping. Um, and we did get some vertical shots off of that compression uh, vertically of their safeties starting to creep Def- down. That's right? definitely true. Um, and so like we, we did get the vertical stretch. It was just weird that it wasn't incorporated in a way that assisted the run game. Uh, and so Ultimately, it didn't end up mattering. The defense really showed up in that game. Honestly, that was the bet. The defense's best game of the whole year, um, by a pretty good margin, in my opinion. What's your opinion on that? I, um, in terms of limiting Utah from scoring, yes, and it's also what makes this three game stretch, you know, absolutely defies, you know, uh, identifying a through line because you have two games in which the defense collapse and then one game in which they have their best, you know, scoring performance ever. I still don't really give them super high marks. They were giving up a lot in the run game uh, in terms, you know, more than Utah was getting against other defenses. Um, you know, they weren't explosive plays or anything, but they were consistently getting like that nine to 12 yard, you know, range. Uh, and, you know, it was sort of frustrating to watch. Now, what Oregon was pretty effective at was getting tackles for loss in that game. And I frankly think more than anything else, it just scared off Andy Ludwig. Um, I think Oregon made Andy Ludwig blink. Um, and if he if he hadn't have blinked, I think that there was an effective game plan for Utah against the way that Oregon's defense was performing. But he did blink, so mission accomplished. Um the 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 other aspect of it is that I really feel like Utah's passing offense is super limited, and I you know frankly yeah uh, this is sort of I'm I, this is like a I guess I'm backhandedly complimenting the Oregon defense or I'm trying to take something away from Oregon's defense, and I'm not like I you know they correctly identified this and they designed a defensive strategy to stop it, and it was you know it was actually pretty heartening to see. But like Utah is so limited in terms of the number of receivers that Cam Rising is comfortable throwing to. It's there's two of them, and I think that uh, you know like he's fairly easy to manipulate, and, and that's why it was so heartening to see Oregon manipulating him. And frankly, they did you know an, an even more impressive job for just talking about the passing defense against Oregon State the next week. Like I, I really felt like there was a lot more like cleverness in the last two games against the passing attack. Um, uh, but it's easy to do against Utah and Oregon State because their quarterbacks, you know, are, are the, the Cam Rising only wants to throw to two guys, and there's you know big problems with Cool Branson that you've you know cataloged accurately. Like uh, the 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 so you know I, I, it was heartening to see that defensive performance. But I mean, Utah sort of hands it to him, hands it to you on a silver platter. Um, and the baffling thing to me is not, you know, why did Oregon do that? The baffling thing to me is, you know, why did 13, you know, other opponents from Utah not do the same thing? 
I, I, I don't get it, man. That offense is not good. Um, and, yeah. and, and the, the fact that they're like, I think F plus have them rated as like the number six, you know, uh, offense in the country. I don't get it, man. Like I really, that's not that difficult of a defense to shut down and kudos to Oregon for doing it. But, <clears throat> well, but man, I, it, it's I, not impressive. I think a trend line that I identified kind of as we started getting through the last quarter of the season here was that like Oregon defensively, especially in the run game against super static run games um, was very effective. Like we, cause we could get guys on the move. We could slant like a lot of, I think both of uh, Casey Rogers tackles for loss against Utah were on slants. Mm-hmm. The problem was, is that, like that works against the Ludwig run scheme, right? Where like yeah, where it's really that, predictable. Like everybody knows which way that run is going. I mean, yeah. a, a dummy like me is able to put it in my article. Where like if you read my Utah preview article, you should have been able to watch that game, point at the screen, and say, "I know where this run is going from the way that the formation is." And sure enough, that's where it went. And sure enough, yep. that's where uh, you know Casey Rogers went. Like yeah, and, and and then you have a back like, and then you have a back that is like perfect like. Tavian Thomas is a changeup in this league compared to the backs that you see usually on a week-to-week basis. But for a team like Oregon with the skill set of the players that we have in the front seven, he's like the easiest kind of back for us to stop, right? Like he's not, he's not very wiggly. Like if you, as long as you stop him from getting started, he's very easy to kind of keep contained within about a yard and a half, two yards of line of scrimmage. He'll probably fall forward for a yard, but you can, with but with the mixture of their scheme plus his skill set as a running back, uh, I I think that that's a good matchup for us, and that showed to be the case, right? I think he had like fifty six yards on eighteen carries or something like that, which I think I mean that's a very modest like two and a half yards a carry. You, you'll you'll live with that um, if you're Oregon defensively. Problem is, is the the next week, right? Like we've been we were rewarded for all of this slanting that we did, and guys were really playing undisciplined almost and, and getting out of their gaps because they can get a quick jump and, and get a get a back who really struggles to stop and start in the backfield. Whereas against Oregon State, they're much better coached. They run a lot of they all they were doing in the second half of that game was alternating basically running inside and outside zone. Yep. Wide zone, <clears throat> inside zone. And they were just they were just letting letting our defensive linemen slant wherever they wanted and just taking them where they taking our guys where our guys wanted to go and their backs were good enough to, to read cut off of it. And our linebackers were just sticking to box and like every, everything that I thought we did well for most of the season um, just was almost a weakness in the, in the fourth quarter of that Oregon state game. We, we didn't get off blocks. We were slow to get to the spot. We, um, we were, we were not disciplined. Like when the way that they coach it is that when, when like when an offensive lineman takes their zone step, even if your job is to is to slant the opposite direction, you need to friction the linemen in that gap so that they can't climb to the second level. And we were just letting guys pass off for free, climb to the second level, and consume players like Bassa, who he he's the only guy that consistently gets to the right spot, but he's tiny, um, and so he really really struggles once he gets engaged by a three hundred pounder. Uh, and then you have players like Sewell, who, like frankly, like, I don't want to be too mean, but like I. I just don't think he – it seemed like he stopped caring. Like he was just kind of loafing around, not really fighting to get off blocks, making sure he was keeping his feet clean. Just really seemed like he was trying to protect himself from any kind of possible injury. And you can't be playing like that because what happens is is that like you play against good offensive lines and good running backs and you're just, you're, you're just getting creased. 
Um, and that was really, really frustrating because like you said, I think that we had a clever scheme um, to, to confuse a really easy to confuse quarterback. Uh, and we were super successful in that game of, of changing the looks in the back half. And all we had to do to win the game at that point was just play sound fundamental front seven defense and something that we had done for the most part all year. We just got absolutely owned. Yeah, I, it's, you know, Oregon State ends that game with 16 successful consecutive runs in zero passes. Um, I, it's just, you know, it's a 0% success rate out of Oregon. Like, I mean, it's crazy uh, against the run. Uh, I just, you know, now I, I can't comment on effort stuff or, you know, any of that because I don't have access to the all 22 and the, the broadcast film of that Oregon state game was just absolutely, I mean, it's terrible that the, the camera angles are basically field level and I, it's fuzzy. Like I, you know, it, it's, I, I really just don't know, you know, how that wound up happening. Cause I just don't have good eyes, you know, on that question. I, I will say though, that like, yeah, that, that is, you know, the, 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 the 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 real problem you know the, the the real problem with Oregon's defense is you know that that's the surprise you know was because I think there are other aspects of it that were not a surprise you know it's not a surprise that when you lose cave on Thibodeau that you know that your pass rush is going to suffer for that it's not a surprise that when you lose three cornerbacks and you only get one good one out of the transfer portal that your you know that your pass coverage is going to suffer those, those things aren't really surprises they're unfortunate but like we sort of knew they were going to happen um in fact we talked about them you know months ago uh the surprise was that i, I this uh, this ilb course should have been better like you know in 2021 it was definitely the thing that was holding back oregon's defensive performance despite having thibodeau and despite having a bunch of good cornerbacks uh was that you know in tim DeRoyder's de- defensive structure you're supposed to have you know everything getting funneled to the ilbs and the only healthy guy that they had was no sewell and everybody else got hurt and they were playing walk-ons and you know and, and and true freshman um and uh you know in 2022 they get you know healthy and they've got you know they're running six deep you know arguably eight deep you know if you want to include uh the the, the true freshman uh uh and like you know it, it it should have been better and it wasn't you had guys who were very physical like so sewell and flow but who were you know frequently out of position or who would overrun plays uh and then you had jeffrey bossa you know who uh, I agree with you is a very smart linebacker and is very impressive that he picked up a linebacking, you know, you know, given that he's a safety. Um, but like, you know, I, I, over and over, you know, I, I believe every week this year, I put it, le- you know, at least one clip of Jeffrey Bossa, you know, either getting run over by a running back or, uh, you know, not able to, you know, like a, a, an offensive lineman is coming up to the second level. And if he's a bigger dude, he takes that guy on and sort of doesn't let him get very far up. And then there's not much of a gap for the running back to, to run through, but he's not able to do that. Right. He's just like he's given up too much weight to the offensive lineman who's blocking him. And so now there is a gap, you know, and it's like, you know, it's not Kalana Apello exactly, but it's something like that. Uh, and it's, you know, it's this really unfortunate situation where you've got, you know, Leduc who's struggling with injuries, Brown, who's a true sophomore. Bossa was getting all these snaps, but he's undersized. And then your two five stars who are just really underperforming between the years and like should have been better. You know, the ILB course should have been better and that, you know, it's been the problem for two straight years, although for different reasons uh, and, and with different defensive coordinators. But like there it is, man. And, and you know, and kind of shocking 
Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of Oregon fans just like have refused to acknowledge that that's the problem, and I think that I've been slow to acknowledge it myself. So I'm just as guilty because, like, you get you get consumed with the star ratings. You had two like high, really highly regarded guys, um, but unfortunately, like, they just haven't been dominant. They, they, they haven't even been close to dominant players, um, but this year they haven't even been very good. <laughs> uh, like we just like are the read and react, the, the instincts, the ability to like scrape off of blocks and shed and beat guys to a point and take good angles and, and not overrun plays. I mean, we just, we're just constantly getting killed. And I'm like, they're the defensive line is doing what they can. They're like the, the Oregon defensive line is very solid. They're not an elite group, right? You don't have a, you don't have guys just defeating blocks and making plays by themselves very often. Um, but they are doing a good job of consuming blocks and staying in their in their in their gaps for the most part. And, and, and this is the Pac-12, you know, they're yeah. it's a big, deep and physical group taking on offensive lines that I wouldn't describe that way. Like, yeah. you know, they they've got the advantage. Yep. Yeah. But in and in 11 and three quarters games, I think that they did what they were supposed to do in this league. Or I guess we played nine conference games and nine and three quarters games the defensive line did their part and, and ate the blocks and, and played with proper leverage and, and owned their gaps. Um, but I don't know that we ever had a consistent stretch this year where the inside linebackers did their part because um, they are in this scheme. Like a lot of times they're responsible for two gaps. And uh, sometimes we were running ourselves out of even having one. Um, I mean, not consistently like we shouldn't. Yeah. I don't think it would be accurate to dump on the inside linebacker core as constantly failing. I don't think that's accurate. I actually think that they performed on a lot of plays fairly well. It's just, it wasn't, you know, the, the, the signal quality of inside linebackers is their ability to every single play, do your job. And you know, that you, you can't say that that was, you know, with the, 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 the level that they were achieving, um, well, you know, yeah, the thing I- that, there's there's a lot of variance though too. It depends on who's in the game and what combination of players, right? Because I I think that like I, I didn't I don't grade the same way that you grade, um, so I don't have I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think that more times than not, Jeffrey Bossa and Keith Brown will get into the right spot. Now occasionally they weren't right, but they also only are playing a proportion of the snaps. Whereas um, I think that Sewell probably gets to the right spot more times than not. But is it is it like at that seventy or eighty percent click like you should expect from a guy who's who's now been playing uh, playing as a full time starter for three seasons? Probably not. Uh, and, and and flow for all of his talent. I mean, there's a reason that that Bassa had a five to one snap share over him. He just wasn't reliable, and the coaches didn't trust him. I mean, he only played fourteen snaps in the last three games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's nutty, but the the well, uh, you know, Sewell grades out at about sixty five percent for me, which is which is a decent number, but not where he should be for being, you know, a for for having played as long as he's played, uh, and, and being basically the guy for all of twenty twenty one. Um, like it's you know, it, it should be closer in the way that I grade things to 73, 74, something in that territory. So, you know, there, there's definitely an underperformance in that regard. The, 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 the primary thing that I see with the guy is, is um, overrunning plays and then missing tackles. You know, it, it's not so much like, 
you know, wrong spot or wrong gap or whatever. It's sometimes wrong leverage. Um, that sort of comes with footwork, but like, but you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think he's a dummy or anything. I think he just sort of gets excited. Um, and, and then he, you know, and then sort of like the, you know, the, the guy makes a cut and gets past him. Um, the, the thing that's crazy to me about Oregon's defensive performances is that like they're for me, uh, Oregon in most of its games, great. Their defense grades out pretty well. The exceptions are Georgia. They, you know, obviously, um, (laughs) Washington, but only against the pass. They actually grade out really well against Washington's run game. In Oregon State against the run, they grade out extremely well against Oregon State's passing game so well that Oregon State stopped passing. Um, and they played a bunch of other really good, you know, offenses too. You know, UCLA, they graded out very well. Uh, Utah, they graded out very well. Actually, UCLA, they didn't grade out great, but they were effectively keeping them. They, they effectively executed their red zone strategy against UCLA. Um uh, BYU has a top 30, you know, uh, offense, uh, Arizona has a top 30 offense, like all of these teams, the defense, you know, grades out very well, almost championship caliber. But then the, the, the games where they are playing terribly, they played terribly. And that's extremely unusual. Um, usually, you know, I, I've, I've been charting teams full seasons for a long time now. I've got something like a hundred complete seasons charted, you know, total over this period of time. Not, not, I'm not a hundred years old, but like, uh, (laughs) but you know, like 10 teams for 10 years, like something along those lines. And like, it is yes you usually see teams perform worse in their losses than in their wins um but it's not usually the needle doesn't move that much usually you know it goes from you know, well like Oregon State for example i just because i, I you know I, I have their complete season chart i don't need to do any additional work for them and i'm staring at their chart right now like they the difference between their losses and their wins is going from something like 53% effectiveness to 47% effectiveness. You know, it's, it's about six points, you know, of a swing with Oregon in their wins. They're at like 60% effectiveness in their losses. They're at like 30% effectiveness. You know, they're, they're losing 30 points uh, of defensive efficiency in their, in their bad games. Um, And like, I, it's, it's bonkers. You know, it's the sort of thing that makes me suspect off the field stuff. Not like I can prove any of that. And I, I don't have any theories or suggestions or anything. It's just to the point, like I've never seen something that like, yeah, in these games and no other games, we're just totally going to get plastered. Um, like play the way that an FCS team typically plays against a power five team, but in every other game, we're going to play real well. Uh, you know, not perfect, but real well. Uh, and, and like that level of fall off is just like, I, I don't, I, I can't explain it. It's not something that I can detect on film. If there is a through line, I'm not smart enough to figure it out, but I can say like, it's extremely unusual and extremely shocking that the I'm going to take my stab at it. All right. I, I, I don't, I don't know if this is, I mean, this isn't provable in any way. It's a completely subject, subjective thing, but I think that there, there's gotta be like, almost like the rule of the law of diminishing returns. Like there must just be a line of offensive talent and it doesn't have to be across the board. It could just be in one phase or the other where we go from being like competent and in like good enough to compete 
to just completely outclassed. I mean, that's what at least that's what it feels like in the passing game. Like against, like we're gonna we're gonna be more than than good enough against most of these passing games, but against some of them where there's just certain athletic matchups that that good coaches can isolate. That there's nothing like like you have to play eleven guys, right? Like there's like this idea that Coach Lanning or Coach Lapoy is going to be able to just completely hide somebody in the secondary all game when a team has a fully dimensional crop of receivers and tight ends and running backs. You can't do that. Like those guys are going to all have to play and make plays to win. Um, and I and I think that like for us it was against Washington, the, like Odunze didn't really do a lot because that's who that's where Gonzo was. But there are other guys where they were able to isolate other matchups that were advantageous for them. Um, and certain teams had the talent to do that and, and other teams didn't. And the teams that didn't, we were able to stay on top of. And the teams that that could, um, that had the depth of talent to make to isolate those matchups and create those opportunities for themselves, were able to create a lot of explosive plays and make us grade very poorly. Well, the, okay. So here's the... The reason why I started out talking way back when we first started recording uh, about like this defies locating a through line is that even though, you know, what I just finished saying, which is that, you know, when they play when they play bad, they play real bad. Um, you, you know, there is a connection there, like it's a 30 point in effectiveness, you know, uh, diminishment every single time. They're for different reasons, right? Like they, they really defy, you know, that explanation. I think that the one that you just gave makes sense for the Washington, you know, passing game. Like they're, you know, that that was finally like the, the sort of structural or personnel problems that we had been noting about Oregon's, you know, defense finally came home to roost, right? Like that they don't have a pass rush that, you know, they've only got one really good cornerback and Washington has multiple good receivers. In fact, one of the things I sort of like noted in my Washington preview article was that like they actually have four really good receivers and bizarrely they're only throwing to two of them. Gosh, I sure would hate it if they figured out that they have two other good receivers and then guess what? They threw two long pet touchdown passes to those two other receivers that they had otherwise not really thrown in, you know, D- Davis and um, and Polk. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, go figure, man. Like, everybody, you know, Oregon's going to get every team's best shot, you know, figuring out that they've got other receivers, you know, against Oregon. I guess you can sort of like, you know, that you know that 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 happens um but like it's sort of you know given the personnel matchups you know that that like and you and you certainly didn't have a pass rush that made Penix think about it you know like which is you know an area that I, I also thought there was some vulnerability um in Washington's past you know structure is that if you make him think about it he sometimes you know he doesn't come up with the right thoughts uh well Oregon wasn't making him you know think like you know like he got to camp out in the pocket you know as long as he wanted or you know one time they got a free shot at him and he scrambles for 15 yards even though the guy basically never scrambles the entire year it was like you got to be kidding me guys uh so anyway like that loss kind of or that that defensive performance kind of makes sense it's different from the way that Georgia beat them. Georgia just destroyed them, you know, in terms of talent and in terms of like, it's, well, we've talked about the Georgia game fairly extensively, but like, you know, is everybody on this podcast willing to believe me that the way that they lost to Georgia and that the way that they lost to Washington were different, you know? Yeah, hundred percent. And so then the Oregon state game, first of all, passing defense wasn't the problem there, right? 
And it wasn't the problem against Utah, and it wasn't the problem against Arizona. It wasn't the problem. It was a little bit of a problem against BYU, but they still, you know, that game was 38 to 10. Right, right. Like, you know, it's not like the pass defense gets pantsed every single game. It got pantsed against Washington, and it got pantsed against Georgia, but for different reasons. Uh, and, and, And other games, you know, they played excellently so well that against Oregon State, this bears repeating, like, they stopped throwing the ball, right? Uh, and for the first, like, you know, three quarters or so of, of the Oregon state game, they were doing an excellent job, you know, uh, at everything that they needed to do. And then they, you know, for 16 plays, they didn't want to play football. I don't know. Like, did you think that they didn't want to play football against Washington or against Georgia or against the other teams that they played? Right. So it's like each one of these things that happened, like, they're their own thing and, and trying to locate like a, aha, you know, I, I I've got it. This explains all three losses or, or, or each of the underperformances or whatever it's like, or Washington state, that game could have, you know, been a loss if, 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 you know, the Oregon offense didn't, you know, come, you know, that has, that's something totally different, right? Like what we see sort of echoes of it at other points. Right. But like not punching it in the red zone in the first half. Right. You know, and then defensively, you know, giving up crazy scramble plays, you know, where the quarterback, you know, in trick plays and stuff. Oregon doesn't fall for trick plays for the rest of the season. Oregon doesn't allow the quarterbacks, you know, to, 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 you know, to make crazy plays, you know, out of the pocket where they flip the ball over the dude's head and the, you know, the, 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 the wide receiver gets away with a block block in the back. Oops. I wasn't supposed to say that. Um, you know, like these, the problems don't recur. And one of the reasons why I don't really like lose faith in Oregon's coaching staff, or at least not yet, uh, is that like, I don't see problems recurring. You know, when I see problems, I see new problems, you know, not like, Oh, it's that problem again, you know? Yeah, no, that's that's something. I, I don't know if it was on the podcast with Doug this week that I said that, but it's like every time like there's a mistake made, and it, I agree 100. Um, percent And I'm glad that we arrived at the same conclusion because I, I did I didn't want to be the guy with the confirmation bias looking for positive trend lines, but it it, fe- it seemed to me watching the tape and 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 kind of watching us throughout the season that every mistake was a new unique mistake, and typically. We did a, We found ways to remedy or fix it week to week. Now, there's some things you can't fix, right? Like, I can't make Triquiz Bridges become Christian Gonzalez between week two and week three. Um, and so whatever limitations exist there from a physical skill set standpoint are going to be there for the whole season. But they they didn't allow, like, coaching errors to beat them again. Um, and I think that that's something that, it should be like a, a, if you're taking a glass half full approach away from the season and, and frankly, like nine and three is not anything to scoff at, especially when you're, you played the number one team in the country in Atlanta for your first week. Um, yeah. You know, I think that Brett Venables would like a nine and three season. I think Mario Cristobal would like a nine and three season. Yeah. But I think it, a bunch it, of it fired coaches would love to have it, a nine and three season it, in their yeah, first I think year. The thing that hurts, right. Is that you lost to your two rivals and you had opportunities to beat them both. Right. Um, and that's why I think that's why the nine and three doesn't taste very good. Although I will say independently, and this is a l- way off topic that this was the most fun I've had watching Oregon football in a long time, like probably back to 2014, honestly, um, just based on how fun and explosive the offense was, the energy. Um, I, I don't know, but 
that that's not the point that we're that we're making here. I, I agree. I I just think that the guys, the staff did a good job of adjusting and, and not allowing the same mistakes to be reoccurring issues because that's usually a sign a sign of bad coaching, right? Like you you're either coaching it or you're allowing it to happen, and none of the stuff that beat us against Oregon State is why we lost to Washington, and none of that stuff that beat us against Oregon State and Washington is why we lost to Georgia. Um, unfortunately, I think we just found ourselves in a couple matchups there where a team found something that they were able to do and we weren't able to stop it um, for a multitude of reasons. Well, you know, it's interesting because the, you know, with both of those losses, right. What do you see from the national media tweeting and what do you see from a lot of duck fans and local media even is, Oh, the fourth down decisions. Oh, so stupid. Right. And I just, I fundamentally disagree with that, that angle. I, I don't think those were bad decisions. I, and I think the things that we're talking about here are, are more of the real reasons those games were lost, not whether you went for it on, on a fourth down that you have a history of making pretty If anything, if I have strategic decision making criticisms for the staff, I don't think they were aggressive enough. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, you're, you're you you've called out you know tonight that fourth down you know in the late in the Washington game when when we took the field goal to go up by seven instead of going for it on fourth and three and I actually don't necessarily agree with you on that one but I, I think overall I think we're aligned that uh, you know the aggressiveness was not the reason that we lost those games. Oh sure, no, the, the same thing like people like like oh they went to the well on the onside kick one too many times it's like no. <laughs> they just fully understood that we were in games that there were going to be shootouts, right? And when if we were going to find stops defensively, it was going to be in the red zone. So if we don't if we don't capitalize on this opportunity to, to capture an extra possession, steal one from the the opponent, then it's not that big of a deal because if if our best shot to get a stop is is inside our own twenty. <laughs> so like I, I I don't know. I just I think and, that some of and, that was just poorly thought out. And, and, and I'll add again, and I talked about it that week, and I've said it many times since, is the, the strategy on that onside kick at the end of the half in the Washington game actually got us the desired result. We held them to a field goal, and we had a two-minute possession. That was, that was the whole goal, right? We're either going to get this onside kick and have a, steal a possession, or we're going to give them a short field, give ourselves a full two minutes to have our own possession afterwards. We're going to steal. Because if, if we had done a normal kickoff, and Washington drives down the field. Maybe they still get. Maybe we still hold them to a field goal. But now there's 20 seconds left, and we don't have a possession. Now it's. It of course we ended up wasting that possession because we went backwards and and you know kind of screwed ourselves up on there, and we ended up settling for a, a hail mary field goal attempt. But that's neither here nor there. Like the actual strategy to kick that onside kick absolutely worked and set ourselves up with a full possession with plenty of time on the clock to drive down and score. And it, and by the way, in a situation where we were masterful at all season long at the end of house. Right. That's the thing that's, you know, when I said earlier that the, I thought the staff was more clever than wise, you know, that's the sort of thing that I, I, I'm talking about. Like, you know, QB, you know, said that he, he had a lot of fun watching this season. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, for me, uh, I'm going to watch the Ducks no matter what. You know, they're, they're all different beers from the same great brewery uh, to me. Uh, and the fact that some of them are, are more bitter than others is fine by me. Um, the, but <laughs> the thing that I appreciated as a strategist is, and as a player of games is was precisely what you just said, Doug. The, the 
their ability to manage the clock and to uh uh, to, to, to squeeze out extra possessions and to deny the opponent the ball to win the middle eight uh, was, you know, some of the best that I've ever seen in a, quite a long time of watching college football. It was uh, masterful. They were masterful. And, and, and you're seeing it out of kids. You know, you're seeing out of kids probably came up, you know, playing Madden, you know, like, and, and like, I, I don't know, somehow in the commentary game, the, the term analytics has become a dirty word. I don't, you know, understand how, how meatheads and, and, and the blow dried set, you know, came to believe this, but like, you actually had a coaching staff who like, who understood the value of going for, for fourth down, who understood, you know, uh, EPA, uh, field position adjusted, you know, available yards. Uh, you know, like I, I sort of, I, I felt more kinship with the strategic decision-making and managerial aspects of this coaching staff than I do with, you know, a bunch of the, the, the gray hairs, uh, and traditionalists. Um, and I, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly I appreciate it. And, and to the extent, you know, that I have criticism for it, because I think they blinked a couple of times. And um, I think when you go back to how, when we had Kenny, uh, you know, Dillingham on the podcast last summer, you know, what did he start talking about? Which was the music to my ears was touchdown rate, like not red zone scoring rate. The, the most overused, terrible metric uh, outside of total offense and total defense is the whole red zone scoring percentage. No, it, it, it's a failure to get to the red zone and kick a field goal. That is a failure. And the fact that this staff understood that and, and embraced that was, was absolutely wonderful to me. So anyway, my, my, my glass half full, you know, take on it. When, you know, when I say the staff is, is more clever than wise, is that like, dude, wisdom comes with age. Um, I've never seen anybody get cleverer as they get older. Um, in fact, I, I quite often see the opposite. <laughs> uh, uh, so, you know, I, I'm, you know, if you're going to have a young coaching staff who's clever and does stuff that other staffs, you know, don't do because, you know, that they're, they've studied this stuff and they're, you know, the Cracker Jack kids, um, and that what they need are a couple of hard knocks to teach them some of the stuff that like Mac Brown, you know, learned over 50 years of coaching and they're going to play against in the bowl game uh, at the end of the month. Like, yeah, you, you can get wisdom, <laughs> you know, it's often a painful experience, uh, you know, and and through losses is, you know, the, the least fun way to get it. But like you can get it. I never I never see coaches get more clever. Like, can, yeah. can you think of a single coach who's ever, you know, gone from, you know, seen the light and, and improved their managerial or analytical approach to the game, you know, their strategic consciousness? No, I mean, I just, I watched Mario Cristobal bring timeouts on the first drives of the half multiple times this year and kick and punt from inside his opponent's 40 multiple occasions. Like the, that's that's like that is the most the single most impressive thing about I'll, I'll give a lot of credit to Lanning as the head coach on this, but his whole staff is there's two things that, that stood out to me throughout the season and included in these last three games. One is that the, the players themselves understood situational football, right? Like guys were looking like when the game was on ice against Utah, like, yeah, he slid too early. He should have gone head first for the first down. But Whittington had the wherewithal at least to understand that, yeah, we want to run the clock. I don't need to go, go out of bounds. Let's try to get on the ground 
and 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 run this clock. Um, like for instance, there were several times where we adjusted tempo even over the course of a drive to perfectly manipulate the clock to either eliminate an opportunity from arising for the, for the opposition to get another, another possession, either at the end of a game or at the end of a half, or we went fast enough to give ourselves an opportunity to get a stop and, and, and compound that advantage with another drive. Right. Um, and I thought that the manipulation of pace, the manipulation of clock, the management of clock, the, overall lack of procedural issues that caused us to burn timeouts um, in, in non-game end or end of half situations were very, very, very strong, especially for a first-year head coach. Here's the other thing that I'll say <clears throat> if we're in glass half full uh, territory is, uh, look, th- there are a number of players, you know, on this team, uh, th- you know, that I like a lot. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Keon Weir-Hudson, uh, and Brandon Dorless graded out very well, uh, uh, for me, uh, 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 Bennett Williams, you know, I loved the pieces. I, I thought Addison on the defensive side, um, had, a you know, he, he, when they switched him from being a dime guy, you know, because of, uh, you know, uh, uh, targeting stuff, they had to play him more often. I thought he really stepped up. Um, I, I love the, the, the entire story, the entire tight end core is amazing. Uh, the offensive line, you know, uh, performed at a very high level. But having, you know, handed out, you know, those plaudits, who are the guys that we spent, you know, the most amount of our time talking about this year? We talked about uh, Bo Nix and Bucky Irving and Noah Whittington. And we talked about uh, Chase Coda. Uh, you know, we 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 talked about uh, 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 Riley and Rogers and Taimani on the, the defensive here. line. We talked about Christian Gonzalez in the cornerback room, right? Like those guys occupied an awful lot of our attention right right yeah and what do they all have in common they're all brought in by the new staff right and and what's going to happen over the next three months they they're going to bring in another 35 to 37 players you know (laughs) that that when i say that the staff is you know more clever and wise the first thing the first thing that they did before they coached a single game before they got in a plane to go to, to to atlanta the first thing they did was it, it infuse the talent, you know, with their guys to the transfer portal. And it's going to be that squared, you know, it's going to be an exponential growth. Yeah, in that. I agree. Yeah. And, and, and frankly, like as is always the case when there's coaching changes, there's guys that fit and guys that don't fit. And I, I, from a roster management standpoint, when, when Dan Lanning took over last year, just because of the timing we got to remember a year ago, right now, Lanning still hadn't been hired yet, right? Like the, the Pac 12 championship game came and went. Mario left for Miami, and it was about a full week after Mario left that Lanning was hired. It was like that Sunday night, right? Um, and so when he came in, the goal was like, we just have to salvage and keep as much of this roster together as possible because we don't have a lot of time to go out on the recruiting trail and flip guys and make changes of mind with when we're five days away from early signing day and we don't have a lot of opportunities um, to evaluate. We don't have a lot of time to evaluate this roster and see how it fits what we want to do right now. So now that we're a full year through the system, they're a full year into their first full recruiting class. They've had the opportunity to evaluate this, this roster and see where the fits, where the fit, where the guys that don't fit are and, and, and make the necessary adjustments 
Um, I expect a roster that fits the system substantially more going into 23 than we had uh, at our disposal in 22. And I mean, who was the, who, who was the number one most productive guy that they got out of the transfer portal? Bo Nix. Did they have to take Bo Nix? Did, did, was anybody in the college football world, you know, uh, uh, saying, oh, this is a home run. Way to go, guys. Yeah, uh, no, what a genius coaching staff this was that got Bo Nix because everybody knows what a successful quarterback Bo Nix was at Auburn. Or, or did they get the other reaction? Yeah, you know? I mean, shoot, a lot of Oregon fans didn't want Bo Nix right, exactly. after Bo Nix committed. And now we're all hoping, sitting here, fingers crossed, that he comes back for one more year. <laughs> right, so. like their ability to identify dudes uh, in the transfer portal um, who are going to be home run hitters. Uh, I I can't, you know, not in the Pac-12 anyway, not not the teams that I study. Uh, not even close. Not even close. No, especially at the hit rate that they had, because we, we hit on everybody. <laughs> and, yeah, the, like, the one guy they didn't hit on was uh, uh, Chapman, the, the Texas A&M guy, and he was injured, you know. Yeah. You know, okay. They took a flyer on that guy. He sort of had injury problems. But, I mean, that's it. That is literally it. That is l- the only one. Everybody else were home runs. You yeah. hit a home run eight out of nine times? Like, are you kidding me? Like, Ken yeah. Murphy Jr., eat your heart out. Yeah, exactly. No, I agree. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm so optimistic about the future still with the staff. I think, again... Yeah, it, it kills a little. It doesn't kill actual momentum. It, it for fans, it kills a little momentum when you lose a year to your two rivals in two of your last three games of the season, especially when at the high point of the season you're ranked sixth in the, in the CFP. But ultimately, I think that you and I agree when we watch the film on this. I think Doug would agree as well that this team was not a playoff caliber team. No, it wasn't it complete that, you know, that was one of the things on, on the scoop deck board that I was talking about today, you know, where like the way that I characterized the defense in the games that they weren't playing terribly was that it was a championship caliber. And somebody, you know, came at me and said, like, are you kidding? Like a championship like this didn't look like a championship caliber, you know, defense. And I said, you know, that that term is saying more than I want it to. I'm really just referring to like other teams that that make it to national championship games perform at this statistical level during meaningful play. But the the difference is the garbage time stuff where like you know, those teams, those actual national championship caliber teams, their backups will beat the snot out of, you know, the the same opponents that their starters did. And that wasn't the case for Oregon, right? Like Oregon repeatedly, their backups let, let teams back into games, right? And they weren't in when guys would get hurt or whatever, like they had a real hard time, you know, substituting, um, you know, past the normal depth that they were expecting to have, you know, and that's the difference between Oregon in Georgia and Ohio state and, and these sorts of teams, just like they haven't been at this recruiting level long enough and they haven't been, and they haven't been blowing out teams long enough. Yeah. That was really the thing that was other, the other remarkable thing about, you know, the, the completing this statistical review project was that I, I had about 200 fewer snaps to evaluate the 2022 team than I did the 2021 or 2019 or 2018 teams. And the primary reason for that, well, there's two reasons. Number one is they were blowing teams out. And, you know, since I don't charge garbage time, I don't, I don't have those snaps to evaluate. And number two is that, that like, they, they were hitting explosive plays on offense and those shortening drives. You know, they were scoring in, like, six plays and not, you know, nine plays, you know. Uh, and, 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 like, 
you know, the, 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 that's what you need to do for multiple years. Like when I, when I finished studying Georgia and in the year before, when I finished studying Ohio state and then like all of their games end in blowouts and then all of their backups are playing for like 30 minutes a game, 12 games a year, like Oregon hasn't had that advantage. They started to get that advantage this year. But it's going to be another couple of years of stacking blowout wins and and garbage time reps for the backups. Yeah, that's how that's that's the advantage that those schools have, other than the like just flat out raw talent advantages that they, because of their flat out raw talent talent advantage, they they're able to parlay that into a developmental advantage just based on reps that are divvied up to the younger players and. That, that's something that doesn't pay dividends immediately. That's something that takes time to mature. Um, but I think that we'll see some of that emerge next year as these guys who were getting these garbage time reps are asked to step into more prominent roles. I mean, that's the thing that, most, you know, I understand this is probably a frustrating thing for Oregon fans to hear. And I've said it on a couple of podcasts now, and I never really get rave reviews for having said it. But like... <laughs> I know that Oregon is close. I know that they've come real close a lot of times over the last decade or so. Um, There's, they got close. They got close because some stars aligned and then they got dashed because the stars unaligned. The difference between Oregon, and I'm not saying they're never going to get there, but where they're at right now and where they're at in those previous close calls is it, it, they just haven't been here long enough. They just haven't been recruiting at a high enough level long enough. They just haven't been blowing out teams for long enough. And those two things, and and, and to the extent that they have been doing those things, they haven't overlapped. You know, their best recruiting was under a guy who couldn't blow somebody out, you know, if his life depended on it, right? And, and their, uh, the, their, you know, best blowout seasons were under a coach who, you know, couldn't be bothered to recruit and, and got, got a show cause, cause order when he tried. Like... <laughs> You know, like the, 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 your best shot for those things lining up is this coaching staff that appears to both be able to identify real talent and get it to Eugene and uh, uh, field offenses and, uh, and, you know, quality enough defenses that they blow teams out and give experience to the backups. That needs to not just happen one year. It needs to happen two, three, four years and really big uh, build up the resiliency of teams. Because I can tell you from studying teams that actually win national championships the georgias and the ohio states and other teams that have qualified for the you know the florida states and and other teams that would have made it kansas states uh you know etc except for you know one stumble you know like i've studied a bunch of these teams and what i see is resilience uh and we're just not resilient yet but this is the closest staff that i've ever seen that's that has the elements necessary to build that up you just gotta you just gotta wait and you gotta pay them so they don't leave yeah, I agree. It, it, I think I'll, I think the thing that sucks um, that a lot of fans will understand is that program building takes time. It's, it doesn't happen overnight. You can't just snap your fingers and have the depth necessary or have like, and I think one of the things that you didn't mention that I think is important too is Oregon has done a piss poor job of, of evaluating and developing quarterbacks for the last. Oh, extremely. I mean, we got lucky with two guys in the last decade. We got Mariota, we got Herbert. Everything else in between was either us getting lucky with a, or not getting lucky, but being able to go out and get a stock transfers is Adams and Knicks. Yep, Adams and Knicks. Everything else, every other quarterback that's touched campus has done nothing really here or anywhere else. Um, So 
we, we cross our fingers and hope that Dante Moore is, is the start to the change of that, right? And we get some consistency of quarterback coach and development and offensive coordinator that maybe we haven't had. Um, but it's, I agree, it's program building takes time. It, there's only one way to do it. It's the hard and the long way through developing and evaluating talent properly um, and converting those guys and managing the roster properly, which I think is one of the things that, Oregon coaches have done well recently, and they adjusted to the trend, the trends of of how to properly manage a roster better than a lot of other coaches in this part of the country. Um, but it it takes all of those things working together in unison to get over the hump. And so what you need to do now is just yeah, cross your fingers that you can keep these coaches in place long enough to get that done because. Oregon is very clearly on the right path right now. I mean, like you're starting to see that separation take place. I mean, we, we started to beat teams this year the way that a team that's more talented should beat teams, right? Finally. About damn time. So, Doug, do you have anything you want to add to this? No, I completely agree with all of that. I, I think, you know, if you look at over the last couple of years, there's – a couple of times where you could say Oregon could have made the playoffs or should have made the playoffs even, um, but that they weren't teams that would have won the playoffs. And I think you saw a team like TCU this year, some other teams we've seen make the playoffs over the last few years that they can make a playoff, but they can't win a playoff. And I think oh, what we're like trying to Riley's build here teams? is, hey, yeah, exactly. I think we're trying to build something here and we're on the right track to a team that could compete to win a playoff if everything lines up. Yeah, I agree. I think, especially, I know you're not a big recruiting guy, but the, and we're going to talk a lot about recruiting here over the next couple of weeks with early signing day coming up and transfer portal um, being open, open for business. But there, the, the profile of the defensive linemen that are being brought in right now by this new Oregon staff is the best the best of my lifetime at Oregon, and I don't I don't think Oregon recruited better before I was born. So, um, like these are the types of things that these are the, where the, the the steps and the progress needed to be made if we were going to take that next step. And so, if you, you got the quarterback, you've got two really talented receivers coming in, but you have the value positions right, um, and and the in the hardest positions to recruit the lines, the edge players. Corners, quarterback, and receivers, um, and so, yeah, I, I've got a lot of hope for the future here, and, I, and I'm 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 excited for this bowl game against against UNC, um, it, just because it's another opportunity to see these guys play. But it's also 15 more practices for all these young guys, especially now with so much so much of an exodus through the portal of guys that weren't really playing a lot of ball for us this year that. That's that's very valuable developmental time. Like I know a lot of fans aren't excited to watch a, two teams with a bunch of opt outs and a bunch of guys in the portal play uh, with limited rosters, but I, we've got Oregon's got true true freshmen to be guys who are going to be early enrollees in January who are showing up to practice with the team and play in this bowl game, um, and that's that's an extra fifteen practices. That's almost another spring ball, um, so. These are these are the reps that matter. These are the reps that really pay dividends uh, when, when we're trying to have a better November in twenty three than we had in twenty two. 
Yeah, the, it will be fascinating to watch the next three months, you know, with the changes to the initial counter rule, the waiver and uh, the transfer portal, uh, you know, really, you know, heating up the way that the transfer portal window opened before early signing day. Um, yeah, this is, you know, we've never seen anything like this in the history of college football. What's going to go down over the next three months as, you know, teams basically are swapping rosters um uh and to balance that against you know the 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 high quality recruits that's you know teams you know like oregon will have access to because they've demonstrated you know that that they can recruit well and they have systems that are effective and that players want to play in like uh you know, I maintain an entire Pac-12 database. Like this, the 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 separation and talent level of Oregon versus the rest of the Pac-12, and certainly the the teams that uh, you know will remain. You know, after the the, the Big Ten teams take off, uh, like is enormous. Um, and even teams that like you know you, you want to shake your fist at, like Washington, Oregon State, because they're rivals and they beat Oregon this year, like. Jonathan Smith and Kalen DeBoer aren't recruiting at that level, like not even close. They, they're not even recruiting at the levels that their predecessors recruited at. And like, it's not like their predecessors cover themselves on glory in the field. Um, like that, that level of separation is enormous. Um, and, and, you know, if you can field a coaching staff that manages the team well and uh, blows teams out the way they ought to, so they can give the backups, you know, developmental times so that when they are called upon to play, that they're not, you know, totally green, like, yeah. You know, that's how championship teams are built. Um, yeah. the, the, the way the championship teams are not built is lucking into it because you had a weak schedule or you played in a poor conference um, without a lot of parity um, and having, you know, a, a weak coordinator uh, that you've been dragging around like a backpack. Um, you know, not a surprise to me that Lincoln Riley has um, had the postseason losses that he's had. Um, I don't think that Oregon's, you know, heading down that path. Yeah, I think going back to the roster management and the portal and everything, I mean, it's not it's not out of the realm of the possibility. In fact, I'd say it's probably likely that Oregon will add 35 or more new players this year between freshmen coming in and transfer portal. That's 41% of the roster. Yeah, it's going to be an almost unrecognizable team. I mean, I mean not really. I, but. I did this exercise with my dad the other night on the phone. He was just curious. He was just like, hey, he's like, pull up the, pull up the 20, the, uh, 2021 opening day depth chart against Fresno State. There's like 10 guys that are going to be on next year's team from that three that three deep. And so it, it is fundamentally going to be a different team. And um, frankly, in, some, in a lot of ways, I'm really excited for that. I, I think that obviously the, the big fish here is getting your starting quarterback to come back for one more year. And it, it seems that things are trending in the right direction there. Um, but if you get Knicks back, you have all the pieces offensively to be just as good as you were this year. I mean, obviously you're going to be getting some turnover on the offensive line, but having the veteran quarterback, the veteran receivers, the veteran running backs, and and, and the talent and and experience at tight ends sets you up to have a lot of success. So if you can make even like a marginal jump defensively from being absolutely terrible to solid, you're 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 in business. So. I'm really excited to see how this roster transforms here over the next three months. That's the thing that's so exciting because even with that amount of turnover, it's still very realistic to expect Oregon's win total to improve and and for them to be, you know, certainly 
competing for a Pac-12 title and, and potentially even even one of those four playoff spots. I think, you know, this year proven it was it was a wide open field. Right. <laughs> and I don't I don't see that being necessarily any different next year. So uh, I, I think to what everyone's saying, like it's a multiple year process. I'm not saying like we're a championship tel- caliber team next year, but you can improve while you're turning over the roster at the same time. Well, and like, look at the team that took the biggest jump between 21 and 22 in terms of their talent. It was Arizona, right? Like, and and, and they did it, the, and the way that they did it was coming and going. By that I mean that, like, they they added a bunch of talent, uh, you know, uh, between transfers like Cowing and uh, freshmen like McMillan. Um, but then they also did it because they – they lost a lot of dead weight, you know, off of the team um, in, in a way that was more aggressive than a lot of other teams that are, you know, your Stanford's and Washington's and, you know, a few other teams that are sort of, you know, reluctant to do. Um, and, and, you know, so, you know, on the fifth, when the portal opened and, you know, for, you know, Stanford wound up bleeding a whole bunch of players, probably for the bad reason. You know, like the, the, those are the bad types of transfers. Those are the get jumping off a stinking ship, you know, kind of transfers. Um, Oregon's transfer situation, with one or two exceptions that that did make me sad to see him go, like Dante Thornton. Um, you know, th- those are appropriate transfers. I'm not saying they're like Arizona level. You know, clearing out dead weight. You know, I don't don't draw a line there, but like. Oregon's losing uh, guys to the portal who it's appropriate for them to lose um, and, and clearing out cap space. Uh, yeah. And, and it is entirely possible. The most talented team in the pac 12 will become more talented, you know, through this process. Yeah, I agree. Well, do you have any thoughts on the offensive coordinator, Harith, or do you not really have a chance to dig in? I have not. I, you know, I, I, consider myself somewhat prescient in that I, uh, Will Stein was on my hot board, um, that I created when, um, when the talk about Arizona state taking Kenny Dillingham started up, I, you know, so I identified a bunch of young offensive coordinators who had high, uh, output teams and, and figured those, that was what, um, landings board was going to look like and so i started acquiring their film early um you know i started actually week two getting utsa games so i have their and then i lucked out and got houston um which was their opener um through a back channel um so i i've actually have utsa's entire season um i am looking forward to getting down to that film um but i'm going to do that after the bowl game uh man like i he's not going to coach a game until september i've got all the time in the world to look at that film right now i've been looking at the unc film um which is really interesting um that's a that's a really good quarterback like a really good quarterback yeah. the rest of the team doesn't exist like it's it might as well not be there um and much of it just literally won't be there because of all the departures but uh um you know it's a it's a team that has a statistical profile that's fairly similar to teams like um that oregon's played this year like uh like byu and arizona um where you know they, they really only do one thing well which is explosive passing not even like efficiency passing just explosive passing but the explosive explosives are extremely explosive they're not like you know 20 30 yards they're like 50 60 yards um so that'll be a real challenge for oregon um yeah it it should actually be you know it should actually be a pretty fun game especially without gonzo it's uh yeah 
<laughs> a little bit more difficult. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's funny. I, when I watch UNC, I genuinely think they're kind of poorly coached, but I do think that their quarterback is exceptional. I think they're poorly developed. They make some pretty smart game management stuff is how I would characterize it. Are you talking about from like a play calling standpoint or like an actual like clock and situational management yeah situational management um you know, clock management i the the like knowing when to call timeouts you know that sort of stuff like i, I think mac brown's like got a good head for this i hope so he's been doing it for freaking three times longer than i've been alive so um but i don't yeah. think it, like it's a relatively talented roster that doesn't play like a very talented roster um like they sort of got lucky with May, who's a very young quarterback. Um, and yeah. uh, I, I think their defensive line is in particular, like, very poorly developed. Um, uh, yeah, no, was, North Carolina's got a bunch of uh, a bunch of problems. And, you know, I'm not surprised that they, you know, beat up a bunch of really bad teams in the ACC because that conference is just complete trash. Um, and it doesn't surprise me that they, you know, lost to South Carolina and Georgia Tech. Yeah, yeah, they they have a gosh. Well, it, it helps that they played in the worst division in Power Five. I mean, that division is just really, <laughs> really, really poor. Um, but yeah, Drake May is fantastic. It'll be pretty fun. I, I have a feeling that that Knicks will be pretty close to one hundred percent by then. So at least we can hope, right? Um, which will open things up. I anticipate it's going to be a pretty high scoring game. Yeah, it might uh, look like that uh, Utah, Oregon, or Ohio State uh, Rose Bowl last year, which is like <laughs> haymaker after haymaker. Yeah. Well, how about I, half of North Carolina's uh, defensive backfields in the portal, so. Yeah, Oregon opened as a 14-point favorite. Let me see. I'll see if I can pull it up real quick and see where we're at now. But um, It's going to be hard, really hard predicting that game because, like, up until, like, the day before it's played, we probably won't know what the, what the rosters are going to be. I mean, Mac Brown said – that like, hey, if you're leaving through the portal, uh, you're still welcome to play in this bowl game. Um, so like, I can't even use that as a predictor. <laughs> um, I don't know who's going to take him up on that offer. I don't know. I don't like, think- I'm going to be writing about an article about this, but I'm not going to publish it until the game's going to be played on Wednesday the 28th. I'm probably not going to publish until Monday the 26th, or maybe even Tuesday the 27th, because like, this stuff might be changing right up until the wire. Um, yeah. It's just, you know, the bowl season is going to become – this is what bowl season is now with the way that roster management um, has changed and the way that, you know, people preserving themselves for the NFL has changed. Um, it's just – it's it's going to be like this. And like you said, QB, the primary value is the practices. Yeah, it's a yeah. developmental scrimmage. Yeah. Um, so Vegas has this thing being like 22 to – 35 so something like that yeah no, that's not gonna happen yeah i don't think that's right yeah oh, give me oh, the sorry. over if that's the case no sorry I, I was looking at the wrong game 71 you have the over under at 71 okay mm-hmm. over under 71 oregon's a 13 point favorite currently but yeah it'll be interesting to see well if um if there's nothing else and i really appreciate you coming on this has been a fun series and hopefully one that we can continue um, next season, and I'm sure we'll have you on during the off season a couple times. But uh, we, I know I speak for Doug and myself. We both really, really appreciate um, first of all all the work you do uh, charting and, and providing really detailed insight uh, for Oregon fans, ourselves included, that really doesn't exist in other corners of the internet with other teams. Um, 
And so we, we, ex we really appreciate your, your unique insight and the work that the hard work that goes into that. I know it's not easy and it can be painstaking to sit there and watch film and chart and, and then put all this in, info into your database. Um, but we also really appreciate you taking the time to come on and shoot the shit with us and, and, and give us your insights and uh, bounce ideas back and forth. Cause I think this is some of the best content we produce. And so, um, once again, just want to thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, I have a lot of fun coming on, um, for my publishing schedule. I'm taking a break, uh, for a couple of weeks from publishing, uh, to do film study in North Carolina. Um, and then uh, I'll, I'll publish a preview of that and then the, the review of the game itself. And then uh, and then it's going to be on to studying Will Stein. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Perfect. Doug, you want to send us off? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. Again, thanks, Hithliday. You can catch him at Addicted to Quack, of course. And uh, we'll we'll be uh, coming back at you again on Sunday night. We'll be have a whole nother round of things. We'll probably do some more listener questions. So watch out for that on our Twitter account at the QB 11 show on Twitter. And of course you can find uh Hithliday at, at Hithliday one on Twitter, QB at, at QB 11 SD and myself at, at Douglas TS. So thank you all for joining and we'll see you in a few days on Sunday. Thank you. <laughs>